Hey everyone, welcome back to Acts chapter 9. We are doing a scripture dive on this awesome chapter where we're going to focus on Saul, his conversion. We're going to um, see the change that God makes in his life. And I'm really excited to hear your takes as we uh, as we dive into this awesome chapter once again. Um, towards the end, once we're through reading the, the chapter and talking about it, we will go through our MVP verses, our favorite verses of the chapter. We will be doing our pronoun breakdown, as always, and uh, and some charting as well. So looking forward to getting into it. It is late here. I don't know if you guys know, but we usually usually record these late so um, so that we can, you know, live our lives and put our kids to bed and things like that. Um, but it's December. It's Christmas time. I'm looking forward to spending Christmas with the family and maybe with all of you. So love you guys and Merry Christmas. All right. Let's get into Acts chapter 9. Avery, okay. you reading for us? Yep, I am the guy this week. Um, so picking up in Acts chapter 9, first off, I love this chapter. It's introducing one of my favorite biblical characters, probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite uh, character other than Jesus in the New Testament. But um, we started are you off... Talking, are you talking about Aeneas? Is that who you're talking yes, about? Yes, yes. <laughs> no, I like uh, Dorcas. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so the narrative is kind of interesting because it talks about Saul towards the end of Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen as well as in the beginning of Acts chapter 8. But then it kind of just cuts off and cuts straight to Philip in Samaria. And then we go all the way through Acts chapter 8, and it's basically Philip's ministry both in Samaria and um, preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch in the desert as well as baptizing him and that whole experience. But we pick up straight away in Acts chapter 9 with Saul of Tarsus. And it says that Saul, right where we left off, was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. And he went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were of whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So this is kind of the overview of the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Saul you know, he's making havoc of the church still. Um, he's seeking to persecute the disciples of the Lord. And to the extent that he goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and desires letters of him, basically giving him consent to go to Damascus to um, persecute these Christians and to lead them away, both men and women. You know, basically any Christian he can find, Paul wants to bind them, throw them in prison and bring him captive back to Jerusalem. What do you guys think about that? I think it's really interesting the way that verse uh that chapter 8 starts and the way that chapter 9 starts with the set, like so similar. It's mm -hmm. you know he was consenting unto his death in uh 8 verse 1. I know that obviously the, these letters weren't written with chapters in mind, but it is interesting that both chapters start that way. Um uh, but Saul was obviously not a great guy. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it seems like Luke is like painting Saul out to be this like continual pest that like, you know, shows his ugly head every chapter. You know, you get that in chapter seven, you get that in chapter eight, and then you're about to get a lot of them in chapter nine. But um, I thought the, the description about him, you know, breathing out threatenings and slaughter is an interesting one. And it's almost like just like it's easy for Saul to breathe oxygen inside of his lungs, it's just as easy for him to breathe out murder and, and threatenings against the Lord. And it really, I mean, this was his passion. 
right? He mentions, I think, in Galatians and in other um, epistles how he was zealous to, to persecute the church, right? This was what he thought his ministry was at the time. And so we're about to see, you know, a zealous Paul that was really in the opposite direction come, I think, you know, in, in, in his tracks. And maybe the Lord will guide him in the other direction to be just as zealous. Yeah, Eric, I think that's such a good point because obviously he's in the wrong here, but he's in the wrong for the right reason. And like, he really, really does think that he's serving the almighty God and what he's doing. And if you look in the old Testament, I think one came to mind. I didn't think of earlier, but I think there's a priest named Phineas who like stabs a couple people through with the spear. He's told to be righteous because of that, because he's purging evil from the midst of Israel and Saul here, slaughter, murder, prison, uh, any, anything's pretty much good for him. As long as he's, uh, as long as he's stifling this voice of what he really does think is heresy. And so, um, I think that's why uh, we'll see such a quick change is because all of his motives were in the right place. It was just that he, he wasn't connecting all the pieces. So when God helps him connect the pieces, the momentum is almost saved when he does the pivot and he actually keeps on going at the same pace. Um, but it, it doesn't really read really clear, but he did get the letters that he mm-hmm. desired. So that is uh that's not super obvious as you just read through it, but that's, so he got the letters sent to Damascus, and then he was following through and going to Damascus to carry out, um, to carry out the the threatenings and slaughter. Right. Yeah. We even see like Ananias talking to Jesus afterwards, and he's like, "This man has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name." So if it doesn't say it here, we get that um, confirmation in the following verse that Saul, you know, has the consent and the backing of you know the high priest to get out here and do this and uh um he's basically fully sponsored to just go out and wreak havoc on christians right but um it's scary what you know even with good intentions what you know the tyrannical government can do even with good intentions like the evil that that can be that can be done in the name of good right Right. All right. That's why it's important to have, you know, you can't just have the right actions with the wrong motives, but at the same time, you can't have the right motives with the wrong actions. You know, it has to be a mixture of the both. But um, you guys ready to move on? One yep. thing I wanted to mention real quick. Um, this is the first time that Christianity is referred to as the way. Um, in verse number two, um, it calls it this way. And this would have actually been like one of the first names of Christians. They weren't called Christians until much later at Antioch. Um, and there's actually five different times in which Christianity in the book of Acts is referred to as the way. Um, one is in Acts 19.9. One is in Acts 19.23. Um, Acts 22 verse 4. And Acts 24 verse 14. And it's interesting that if you look at each one of those instances in which the church is referred to as the way, persecution is mentioned. And I think why they identified themselves under this name as the way is to emphasize that this new walk with Jesus, Christianity, is more than just a um, a fad, right? It, it wasn't just a movement in the first century. It was a way of life, right? They were following the way, the truth, and the life. And so I think it's it's only proper that this term is used in light of persecution because it was um, really nailing the coffin on the head that 
whenever you accept Jesus, right? Whenever you believe on him, whenever you receive the Holy Ghost and you follow him after that, right? It's a way of life. And it's a way that sometimes, right? It's great peace and there's revival and there's miracles. And sometimes that way leads you down the road of persecution. But through it all, right? It was this resounding belief of the church that we're going to follow Jesus no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm going back to that whole idea of Saul, uh, you know, not only wanting and getting the backing of the high priest to get out here and do this persecution, but in from two verse two to verse three, it's almost like an immediate jump, you know, and uh, the Bible says as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. So what he got authority to do, he's already on his way to go do it. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with Saul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man or nothing he couldn't see. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Okay, so here's what we commonly refer to as the road to Damascus experience, right? This is Saul's first encounter with Jesus Christ. And um, number one, uh, somebody said something. I heard somebody say something one time that in the New Testament, you know, after Jesus had died, been crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended back up into heaven. When the New Testament is in full swing, Paul is the only person that Jesus Christ personally won. You know, he used a lot of disciples and apostles and other great men of God to go out and be witnesses, like Acts 1.8 says, but Jesus didn't use another apostle to witness to Saul. And Saul even brings that up in one of his later epistles. He's like, you guys didn't give this to me. I didn't receive this gospel by word of man, but I received it from Jesus Christ. You know, he, and that just shows, I, I feel the immense importance of Paul's ministry and how, how much God was wanting this guy to, you know, come to the faith and be a, you know, a wrecking ball for the kingdom of God. Right. But, um, and you know, too, thing, Aver, kind yeah, of your point real quick, you know, um, if you go back to Acts chapter one, whenever the um, 11 were trying to appoint a, a substitute for Judas, right? One of the qualifications to be one of the original 12 apostles was that you had to see Jesus risen mm -hmm. from the dead. So this was really the pinnacle, right? That Paul could point back to and say, I'm an apostle just like any of you are because I've seen the risen Jesus. And what did he say? And he saw him on the road to Damascus. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And uh, Jonathan, you got anything on that before we go to another idea? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the idea of Paul being hand chosen is really interesting. I mean, if you look at his uh, academic credentials, he spoke a bunch of languages. He studied under Gamaliel. He was all over the place. Um, and God used that when he brought him in to, to serve the kingdom of God. And I think this reminds me of uh, when the scripture says your gift will make room for you. It's not that, God only calls the qualified. It's not at all what I mean to say, but I would argue that God had actually been qualifying Paul for a, a purpose that he didn't even know he was going to fulfill. And then uh, 
and then he sees that calling. So he'd been called for a very long time and God was working those things in him and God uses those things. And I think that's anyway, that's a really, really good instance of uh, gifts making room for you. If you'll just uh, let the Lord use you. And, uh, and I think it's really interesting. Paul didn't even have to ask for the interview. God's <laughs> God's the one there making time for him. So well, yeah, that's really cool to me. Yeah. And uh, one phrase that always st stands out to me, in this passage is it's is hard for thee to kick against the pricks when i was younger i was like i have no idea what that means you know yeah. and uh just to put a little bit of context and perspective around that when a uh when an ox was plowing a field uh the person behind the ox would always stand behind him and he had this long stick with like a iron spike or whatever at the end and um that word prick there, hard for you to kick against the pricks. Modern day translations translate it to goads, and that's like that long stick with the pointy end. Cattle and prod. yeah, cattle prod. The um the farmer, if you want to call him, that would uh poke the ox in whatever direction he wanted the ox to steer. But when the ox would want to rebel and not go the way that the farmer wanted to, it would kick, you know, and it would drive that cattle prod like deeper into the um into the flesh of the ox. And what Jesus is saying here is like, Saul, you, like we've been saying, you know, you really want to please the almighty God, but you don't really realize that you're actually rebelling against my cause and persecuting the very cause that you are actually so passionate to follow. And because of that, Jesus is saying, you know, there's, you know, that is a, a road that leads to suffering, persecuting my people. And um, we're going to kind of pick up on this idea of suffering coming up here in, in a few verses when Jesus is talking to Ananias concerning Saul. So we can put that on pause and bring that up later. But that's what that phrase means. It's basically that uh, Saul is rebellious to the cause of God than um, unlike he expected to be. Yeah, I think that there's a really cool concept here in verse three uh, about the light from Jesus blinding Paul. And I did a little bit of a study because I was curious about it. And if you want to track light as it's associated with God, there's actually a really strong thread going back to like Psalms 104 verse 2 says that he covers himself with light as with a garment when he stretches out the heavens. And then in the New Testament, Timothy, uh, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he says that God only has immortality. He dwells in a light which no man can approach unto. Um, Revelation talks about him being the light of the city. And I think it's really interesting because... Uh, especially as like oneness Pentecostals, we think of holiness as something very attainable, something that we need to pursue in life. And it's totally true, but there is an aspect of holiness, true, pure holiness of God um, that like Isaiah sees. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and he falls down and he wants to be purged. And there's, so there's an aspect to this holiness, this purity, this light of God that is uh, so pure that it destroys all things that are flesh. Um, and I think without going way, way, uh, into it. I think that we see that concept of God purifying us a little bit here on earth so that we can be made perfect in heaven later on. And to me, I see that actually in the fire that is with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, right? It's a fire now that purifies so that when the fire of the end of the world comes, we can survive it. It's a little bit of holiness now so that when the true holiness of God comes, when our bodies are changed, and we're made like him, we can actually survive. It's it's almost like the concept of, uh, from a medical standpoint, like a vaccine a little bit now so that you can take more later. And uh, it actually blinds Paul here. And I think it's interesting because I think Stephen probably saw a really similar thing when he was dying, the glory of God shining from heaven, Jesus at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
Um, but Stephen wasn't blinded by that. He was actually attracted to it. And I, anyway, I think it's interesting. It depends, um, or not, it depends. We and our relationship with God is different. Um, and what we can handle from God is different at different times. And so I see a really interesting corollary there between Stephen seeing God in glory, which is brightness, right? From, from Isaiah seeing the throne from other places in the Bible, we see that. And then Saul being blinded by it because he really didn't want to see <laughs> Jesus as uh, the almighty God. And, and yet he says, uh, Lord, uh, what, who are you? Right. And the Lord says, I am Jesus. And so anyway, I love that. Yeah. I think it's, you know, Paul would have probably thought of the Shekinah glory of God in the old Testament mm. behind the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go into. And there were certain qualifications that you had to meet to be able to go into the Holy of Holies. So I'm sure he's experiencing this and that's what, his Jewish mind is going to back to the old Testament tabernacle with the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And, you know, Paul would have been a part of the Sanhedrin. So it's likely that whenever Jesus was on trial, Paul would have been somewhere in the mix, right? And he would have seen Jesus as a human being right in the flesh. So Paul looks and he, he sees a person that resembles that humanity, but he, like Stephen, like you mentioned, Jonathan, he doesn't just see a human being. Now he sees someone in glory, right? He sees someone in the Shekinah glory of God to where he doesn't just see Jesus, right? As the son of God, right? As a human being, he sees him as Yahweh, as Lord. But quick thing on that, you said Yahweh and Lord together. Um, I think it's interesting in uh, verse five, when, when Paul says, who art thou Lord? Um, I was curious because we have the Septuagint and this is getting rather ling lingual. So I apologize, but we have the Septuagint to be able to see what kind of Greek words have been translated uh, for the Hebrew words in the old Testament. So the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the old Testament. You can see both ways, but we don't really have a good uh, translation that is Hebrew for the new Testament. So when we see Paul saying in this case, Kyrios, Kairos, however you want to say the Lord word there, that he says, who art thou, Lord? We don't really know exactly what word that would translate to back in the Old Testament, except that we see uh, in, in Matthew, I believe it is, chapter 4, verse 7, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan. Um, Satan says, do all this stuff, and he responds a couple times. It's written, do not tempt the Lord, your God. And so because Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, um, and he's, he's quoting from uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16, that word in the Old Testament, when it says, do not quote, or do not tempt the Lord, it's Yahweh. And so Jesus translates Kyrios as Yahweh there in Matthew chapter four. Mm -hmm. We also see Kyrios used by the disciples for Jesus. So to sum all of that up, I think the really cool thing here is that uh, the disciples use Kyrios to refer to Jesus while he's on the earth. Jesus uses Lord as a direct translation of Yahweh. And when Paul asks, who art thou, Lord, Jesus says, I am the Lord. And so that is Jesus being Yahweh. So anyway, a little bit long there, but I think it's really important when you look at oh, all the, so <laughs> when you look at all the, the words and you track them back, there is uh, an ultimate unity and there is a, a translation across all scripture. Yeah, I love studying out the hidden I am's of that mm -hmm. Jesus says in the Old Testament or in the yep. New Testament. It's so cool. It's so cool to see all that. Um, but yeah, you guys got anything else on this passage? Uh, I just I don't know why when when I was look think reading when you were reading it, I was thinking about the last uh, verse seven. With 
Saul was the only one that had this experience, kind of like Steven, right? Like it was a very personal thing, but I'd be interested to kind of see the different times where it was like group experiences with these miracles and these showings and these signs and wonders and like a personal. I just, I don't know. It just intrigues mm. me what, why, you know, why sometimes it's a very personal thing and why it's uh why it's not. Any well, thoughts that's on a really that? good question. Sure. And I think we've kind of been seeing a mixture of both because, I mean, up to this point, you could argue other than the Stevens and the Pauls, you know, most of the Book of Acts has been a collective experience, like the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, collective experience. Um, everybody getting healed and all these miracles happening, Jesus changing all of these people, people's lives in Samaria and Jerusalem and all these places. Those are all collective experiences that is happening to everybody. But I think the reason why we're getting these very personal experiences is because they were happening to people and it significantly affected the course of the New Testament church. And we're just kind of, I think it could be for narrative's sake almost and for context's sake, if you want to put it that way. But I mean, yeah, I were so my point is there that we're kind of seeing both take place. But yeah. Um, it it is interesting, Jonathan. Anything to say on that? Oh yeah, I mean, you were talking about specifically the the case there with Paul on the ground, Saul at the time, and it says that the people that were with him heard the voice, but they couldn't see anything. So that's actually, I think, it's a really cool question you ask because when God reveals Himself, uh, who's to say that everybody perceives Him the same way? Uh, I don't think that they do exactly. And uh, anyway, there's some literary, really interesting um, examples of that. One is C.S. Lewis's. Uh, the final battle at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, but that's beside the point. Anyway, there are many ways that people see God. And, and when Paul saw the light, he was blinded. It says he opened his eyes at the end and he couldn't see. And yet the people that were around him heard the voice of God. And actually I was wondering about that earlier. It's like, what did they do with that? Right. If they heard a voice and they didn't see anyone and then Saul starts getting converted in Damascus, where did all those guys go? That's what I want to know. So like, I also think, if I were the guy that heard the voice from heaven saying, arise and go into the city and it'll be told thee what thou must do. I'm going to be the guy helping the guy get up and go into the city. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of them were probably, probably a bit spooked and like, okay, let's just go into the city, do what it said. But um, yeah, it's, it is an interesting experience. I also feel like, you know, Paul's blindness was a physical manifestation of his spiritual state too, mm -hmm. you know, because you see later that whenever he's baptized, then his eyes are healed and the scales fall off from his eyes. So I think there is this motif that kind of Jonathan was alluding to in scripture and in literature where, you know, there's a spiritual state of Paul's heart that we see on the outside manifested in his physical being and his eyesight. And we'll see that in the healings and the, um, the repentance that even Jesus does in, in the gospels. Right, when he says that he heals those that were possessed with demons and, and, and yeah. how they how physical manifestations and illnesses are really spiritual battles. Which, in my, um, me and my dad have this conversation a lot. A lot of times, um, I think of that verse in Psalms uh, where David is like, uh, Bless the Lord, all my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And me and dad are always like, I don't think it's a coincidence that forgiveth all thine iniquities comes first before healeth all thy diseases. Many yeah. times before Jesus would heal a blind man, would heal the man sick of the palsy, he would say, son, thy sins be forgiven thee first. Yeah. And we kind of see that Paul is, um, 
filled with the Holy Ghost. You know, Paul has that internal change, that internal forgiveness of sins before he has, you know, the scales come off his eyes. So um, I think that actually is an element there. And we can even apply that back to, um, like, if you need a physical healing in your own body today, like one principle that I've always tried to apply if I ever feel sick or if I'm ever in that state is go to God in repentance, you know, submit my spiritual self to God. And a lot of times I will see improvement in my physical need, you know? Absolutely. I mean, scripture for that, James chapter five says it almost verbatim mm -hmm. what you guys are saying, right? Confess yeah. your faults one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's tied right there, right there. That's good. It's mm -hmm. really good. I like it. I like it. I really like just to kind of round up this passage. I really like um, the two questions that Saul asks. And I feel like it's the two questions that every believer should be asking, right? Every new believer. And it's that, who are you, Lord? And then right after that, what will you have me to do? You know, mm -hmm. um, we kind of talked about um, he doesn't take a perfect theological understanding last week to be saved. Right. But after you're saved, you're going to spend the rest of your Christian life asking that question, who art thou, Lord? Right? Paul mm -hmm. thought he had a really profound understanding of Yahweh because of his understanding of the Old Testament. But we even know that at the end of his life in Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So even at the end of his life, Paul was saying, I'm just trying to know Jesus. Right. And I think that's the entirety of our Christian life is that we'll spend, you know, years after we're converted, getting to know Jesus on a deeper and deeper level throughout our, our Christian walk. But then it's also, what will you have me to do? Right. Um, Paul didn't wait for someone to tell him he's an apostle to start his ministry, right? He wanted to immediately start witnessing and teaching in the synagogues, and we'll see that later. But I feel like a, a few people really ask that question nowadays whenever they're whenever they receive the Holy Ghost because they're just not sure, right? But I think it's this question out of a deep obedience to what God wants you to do and in sincerity that God's going to give you an answer. Sometimes it might be something convoluted, like go to a street called straight and inquire for this person. And it might be convoluted like that. And sometimes it might be straightforward, but God's always going to answer the question. If you ask him in sincerity, Lord, what will you have me to do in my, in my walk with God? That's really good. Street right. called straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> All, All right. right. You guys ready? Yep. Okay. Um, pick it up at verse nine. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done in thy done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. We're going to keep going, just a few more verses. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes 
as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, food, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Okay, so a lot to unpack in this passage, but um, one thing I love um, about this passage is just the character of Ananias. You know, Ananias is just a faithful disciple. He's, um, one can almost infer he's kind of in the spirit. He's praying, he's walking in the spirit because the Lord appears unto him in a vision and says, go and talk to this man, Saul of Tarsus. And I love Ananias' response because it shows a superhuman response. He's like, Jesus, this guy is wreaking havoc in Jerusalem, killing Christians, killing people that believe the way I believe. And you want me to go just chat it up with him? You know, you want me to go to this guy's house? And, you know, Jesus has to reassure him a little bit. But, um, yeah, I love the character of Ananias. What do you guys think about Ananias? I think it's cool how he's just a certain disciple, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, There's nowhere else in scripture where this Ananias is mentioned. I mean, he's mentioned whenever Paul reflects back on his conversion story later in the book of Acts. But in terms of a narrative, this is the only time where Ananias is mentioned. He just seems to be an ordinary man, right? He's not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's not a pastor, a deacon. He just seems to be a willing vessel, right? That comes on the scene who is praying at a certain hour and God gives him a vision. And I think it's cool, you know, God could have just, Jesus could have could have answered Paul's question on the road to Damascus whenever he, he asked him, Lord, what should I do? But instead he said, I want you to go and seek for this guy named Ananias. And I think it just really emphasizes that God wants to use people, right? And God wants to not just build people in silos and islands. God's trying to build a church. And um, it really convicted me reading this passage because I want to be an Ananias, right? Even if I consider myself just a certain disciple, an average, um, just an ordinary follower of Jesus, I want to be available for that Paul experience, right? Whenever God's calling me to go and meet someone, I don't want Jesus to have to just tell him everything, right? In prayer, I want to be available for God to lead me to those people. You're (laughs) anything but ordinary, Eric. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's it's interesting because we, we have another Ananias to contrast this one with, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Ananias in chapter five was quite different than the, than the Ananias in Acts chapter nine. Not the same person, by the way, Quizzers, just so you know. <laughs> Not the same Ananias. <laughs> um. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. And uh, Ananias' response, like I said, was uh, very human. But uh, I love Jesus's reassurance to Ananias, uh, where he says, go that way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and the children of Israel and kings. And then I love this verse, verse 16 here, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So we, uh, I, t- I said earlier that there's this theme of suffering that's going to come up. And we see that when Saul was living the rebellious lifestyle, persecuting Christ and persecuting the cause of Christ, that Jesus said, you know, it's hard for you to do that and to kick against the pricks. That rebellious lifestyle is going to lead for more suffering of your flesh to more suffering in your life. But at the same time, Jesus also tells Ananias that when he comes into the life of serving Christ, then he is also going to suffer great things for the sake of Christ. And um, that leads me to this idea. I I can't remember who said this or if this is a quote or if this is something that I just heard in conversation, but life is suffering. No matter what we do, no matter what 
you know, lifestyle we live, there's going to be an element of suffering in that. The problem is when we're in the world, when we're rebellious against the cause of Christ, it's almost like we're left to endure that suffering alone. But if we want to continue with that theme of the ox, Jesus says um, for us to be yoked together with him in the New Testament. And a yoke was that big wooden strap that goes over two oxen and the oxen plow the field together. And usually there was one lead ox in that yoke. And Jesus is literally saying, when you are yoked together with me, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it's like there is still going to be an element of suffering that comes with walking in the way of Christ. But it's almost like Jesus takes that suffering and that burden and he takes the brunt of it for us. So suffering for his namesake is kind of equal to Yes, suffering, you know, none of us can escape suffering, but Jesus bears the majority of that suffering. Yeah, and that's awesome that you mentioned that, Avery, because if you read Paul's epistles, I feel like that's Paul's highest calling is to be able to suffer with Jesus. Yeah, you you even brought up that verse, you know, that is one of his goals to suffer for Christ. Right. He says that in my weakness, right, his strength can be made perfect in my weakness. You know, he even says like, he says some really powerful statements in the epistles. If you haven't read Galatians and Corinthians, there's some deep stuff in there. He says in Galatians 6, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, like the crucifixion marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul even and we'll see that really in Acts nine starting out, he was three days with blindness, right, and deprivation, not being able to eat. I don't think that's coincidence that it's the same number that Jesus was in the tomb, right, for three days. So he was already teaching him, even in his conversion, right, that the life of, of following after me is a life of suffering. But in that suffering, you're going to be associated with Christ like never before, right? You're going to know Jesus on a deeper level. And I think that that's a great perspective that we can have, right, as Christians on suffering, that whenever we're going through hard times, that's just um, that's just a greater opportunity, right, for God to be seen through us. Yeah, so or uh, Romans eight says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And that's another thing. It's almost like Paul realized that the suffering of this present time and the suffering of this hour leads to glory, more glory with Christ on the other side. So light yeah. afflictions, which are but for a moment, work yep. in us a more exceeding weight of glory. Yep. The time on this earth is just a moment compared to eternity, right? Mm-hmm. What is what is a lifetime here compared to yeah. eternity with the Lord? Right. And going back uh, and kind of diving into that idea a little bit, um, Eric, and you already referenced it when Paul said that I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, but also in the fellowship of his suffering. Um, and I brought this up before, but um, Dr. Painter from Urshan, he teaches a great message on pain. And um, he's basically the idea of the message is you are never closer and you never relate to Jesus more than when you are in pain and when you're suffering. Because again, like Paul saying, I literally bear in my body, the marks of the Lord Jesus. How did he get the marks of the Lord Jesus through all the pain and all the suffering of, you know, suffering shame for his name. Like we saw with the apostles in chapter five, they rejoiced at that because they realize that pain, shame, suffering, all of that lets them identify with Jesus. And that's all they wanted. They wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to be holy and set apart. And that suffering leads us to holiness. You know, we could even go that far and say that, but it's good. Powerful truth. Powerful truth. 
Let's talk about verse 17 and 18. 17 and 18? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is uh, probably one of my favorite verses in this chapter because we see the same Ananias that was skeptical of Saul, that obviously knew all of Saul's baggage going into this moment, and he goes to him, and the first thing he says is, Brother Saul. It's like, come on, man. Like That's the love of God, right? Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, yeah, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I like the, um, you know, his command to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Um, You know, thinking back to how God told him that he was going to be a vessel, right? Obviously, Paul was a broken vessel, right? The Lord showed to him on the road to Damascus that what he was doing was wrong. God had to break him, right? But whenever God broke Paul, he then sent the Holy Ghost to fill him, right? Like a vessel he was being filled up. Right, so that he can go out and be an earthen vessel to the nations. I think it's cool how God doesn't just leave people broken, right? A contrite, a broken and a contrite heart is a part yeah. of salvation through repentance. Mm-hmm. But God doesn't leave you there. He then fills you with the Holy Ghost. It's just a beautiful passage. I think it's interesting with uh, 17 and 18 as the end of a concept of almost the game of telephone. And uh, I was exploring this in an essay that I wrote about water baptism a long time ago because I was trying to track down each of the places where somebody's actually water baptized. This is obviously one of them. Um, But if you go back to six, God tells Saul, you need to go into town and do what I tell you. Then in 12, God tells Ananias, go pray for him that he might receive his sight. And then in 16, he adds that he's going to tell Saul what he's going to suffer. In 17, Ananias tells Saul, I'm here that you can receive your sight and the Holy Ghost. And then in 18, he receives his sight, the Holy Ghost and gets baptized. And so I just, I think it's so funny because like none of those three elements were in any of the previous, like go for these purposes. And yet they followed uh, because an experience with God is, is a large package there. And I just think it illustrates the fact that um, different people get different pieces of what's going to happen again like god told saul a little bit he told ananias a little bit more and then ananias shows up he's like hey you're gonna get the holy ghost too so anyway and i think that just proves that that was that was just what the first century preached right exactly yeah he didn't have to tell him oh by the way pray for him to get the holy ghost because ananias is mine he's thinking whenever i'm gonna go talk to him he's gonna get the holy ghost that was just a Mm -hmm. given Mm -hmm. it's a normative experience I loved I love the next verse though. Whenever he had received food, he was strengthened. <laughs> That's just like a you know, it's kind of like one of those details in Mark five, uh, with Jairus's daughter. You know, at the end, after she's healed, Jesus commands to give her food. You know, <laughs> it's like one of those details that just seems really insignificant. But I think it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the spiritual and the physical, right? There are some people that say today, well, God doesn't do miracles. Right. God's only concerned about the spiritual and the and the heart. And I think it's passages like these that prove that God's concerned about both. Right. He's concerned about your spiritual well-being. But if you need physical healing, God's also concerned about that as well. I I think, you know, it's easy for us to not empathize with Saul. But I mean, he went he was he was living the life that he thought to be true wholeheartedly and then he has the experience in damascus and it, you know in verse nine it says three days without sighting he neither did eat nor drink i think he could have eaten and drinking if he wanted to but he probably was just sick i mean you you 
the one that the the one that you've been persecuting is God, you've been wrong. Your whole life was wrong. You were so wrong about who you are. You know, what what made up the core of his identity, he was on the completely wrong side of. And so for he didn't eat or drink. He probably was just so sick to to, to his stomach thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um and then God healed him, you know, God God healed his sight, God healed his soul, and God probably I'm guessing he took some of that away from him and 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 uh some of that pain away from him because I'm, I'm sure he had real pain which yeah and up until this point god never really disclosed to saul that he actually had a purpose for him he kind of just said you're persecuting me go into the city and you're going to be told what you're going to do and saul's probably like what's going to happen to me you know <laughs> just sitting there in the corner in the fetal position blind and not eating food because he's probably terrified at what just happened too like he yeah. wronged god and Again, I, I, we were teaching a lesson in our youth class, and we were talking about in the Old Testament, when somebody wronged God, it usually meant they died. You know, a lot of people died because they wronged God or were coming against God or were persecuting God in the Old Testament. And that's all Paul knew. You know, so he's probably like, if I'm persecuting Jesus, if I'm persecuting the one true God, what's going to happen to me? You know, so that probably played a factor in. But I love when Ananias comes you know, he's real gentle. He's like brother Saul. And it's almost like God, not only does, you know, Paul get strengthened physically, but it's like the Holy ghost comforts him, you know, when he receives it and he's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not a total screw up, you know, God's grace is sufficient. That's where he gets the first taste of God's grace. And he's, you know, able to, be at peace and at comfort and ready to move on to the next step, you know, and we see in the next couple passages or in the next couple of verses that he goes straight to preaching Jesus, you know, it's like, I'm at peace. Let's go. You know? Yep. I think it's awesome. We're about to get to it in 22 and you were just hinting at it there, Avery, but it says specifically that Paul increased in more strength and confounded the Jews, which dwelt at Damascus. I was like curious about that. It's like, he wasn't hitting the gym more often. That word strengthened is used in faith terms all over the New Testament, where it says that Abraham grew strong in faith and was able to offer Isaac um, in other places. Um, and so what the Lord is doing, it's and it's usually from, from the Lord, where God is directly giving understanding, comfort, hope, um, working as the Holy Ghost, as a comforter, right? And so just to your point, right? Once and as Paul started preaching, God is is filling his tank back up, right? Bringing him right back up to the, uh, to the Paul level of, uh, of witnessing again, which we'll get to know so well throughout the rest of the new Testament. Yep. Yep. So, um, I think that's a good segue in the next passage, starting at verse 20 and straightway Paul or Saul preached Christ in the synagogues that he is, Jesus is the son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for the intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him, to kill Saul. But their lying in wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. Okay, so again, you know, we see, kind of like you were saying already, Jonathan, we see God bringing Paul back up to his 
uh, full level in strength. He's grown in strength, not just, you know, in his body, but also in his faith in Jesus. He's preaching to people. And um, the one truth that I see here is that we can preach and we can help others, even though we may not be at 100% ourselves. You know, like people always have this mindset that I need to be so perfect in my spirit. I need to be so at this level to minister. But, you know, Paul had just realized that he had been wrong in his stance with God for so long. And he's coming off of a three-day fast where he hadn't been eating, you know, and he's his faith is probably lower than it should be. His confidence is probably lower than he should be. But, yeah, he still goes and ministers. And... You know, to an extent, you know, I think you can't pour out of an empty cup. You need to be filled and you need to be at a certain level to where you are capable to minister. But at the same time, we see this theme all throughout Scripture where you can't let your imperfections and your um, your lack, the areas that you lack, dictate your ability to minister. Because, again, God's grace is sufficient. Where we are weak, he is made strong. And Paul, again, is seeing that firsthand. The same zealous Paul that was persecuting the church, we now see the same zealous Paul that is preaching to the church and advocating for the church. So, Yeah, kind of to your point, Avery, you know, it'll be years until Paul will actually become a missionary. You know, he won't become an actual missionary until Acts 13, whenever he's commissioned out of the church of Antioch with Barnabas. But just because he didn't have a position or a title— right? Didn't stop him from witnessing. And I think that goes back to what is all of our call as children of God. And that's to fulfill the great commission, right? To be a witness, whether you're going to be a pastor or teacher, an evangelist, a school teacher, whatever it is, we're all called to be a witness. And I think what you do in those areas of waiting, right? Whenever you're just converted and you're waiting for maybe your first gig in ministry or, or to see your ministry come to fruition, the waiting period is where God builds you. Right. If you can become faithful in those small things, Jesus said, I can make you ruler over many things. And I think it's it's this it's these pure moments where Saul is on on fire for God, where God's teaching him how to be a servant and how to how to care for people and how to witness to people. It's just beautiful to see him start off witnessing even after conversion. Um, I think there's also a lesson here for people that come into more truth or if I guess explicitly like these days from one denomination to another denomination. If the Lord shows you truth, I mean, the Jews were his chosen people. They weren't totally lost. What they lost was not seeing Jesus when Jesus came. So that, that was Paul's fault is not recognizing Jesus as Messiah. And we actually have two examples of people who were taught by the Christians in the acts. One is Paul here. And the other that I can think of is um, the other Ananias in, uh, Oh, is that Ananias? I think it is, who is teaching in the synagogue. My brain is tired now, but there was another guy who Aquila and Priscilla appeared to. Apollos. Apollos. Apollos thank you. I knew yeah. it was an A. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, Apollos. And both Paul and Apollos had something wrong. Um, Paul is, is shown a little bit more because um, we know what he had wrong, but both of them got the lesson and they heard and they took it in and they turned and they went on preaching. And uh, I think that if you come from another denomination or if you have something wrong with your theology and the Lord shows it to you, uh, I mean, by all means, repent over it, do your three day fasting thing, but then come back at it. It's not like, uh, it's not like God wants you to just mope about it for the rest of your life. Take that momentum and go because the Lord is calling you into his purpose. And, um, you don't need to, you don't need to, you know, mope about 
where you've been. You just need to take advantage of what God's given you. Um, yeah, I think too, you know, Peter mentions to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, there's this progression of understanding who Jesus is, growing in your theology. But then, like you're saying, Jonathan, not letting that stop your ministry. Just like Apollos, whenever Priscilla and Aquila expounded the way of God more perfectly unto him, he was like, all right, cool. I'm going to keep doing my thing. You know, that's how ministry is. It's just a con consistent learning and growing. Mm -hmm. One thing, too, that I see um, to that point, you know, to those people that are coming in from a different belief or, um, you know, they did see an error in their theology or they are growing in grace, growing in faith and adding on to their faith. I don't think you should disqualify yourself from ministering and just mope about it. But also I don't think people in the church should also disqualify people that are yeah, coming over to the side because we see, I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but we see in the next passage that Saul is going to Jerusalem to, you know, basically he's like, okay, I have done all this. I probably need to go show myself to the disciples at Jerusalem and the apostles. And we see that some of the people in the church, some of the disciples didn't believe that Paul really converted. And they're like, no, we're not going to trust you, you know, but we see that, you know, ultimately the church had to overcome that. And when they went to the apostles, Barnabas ended up standing up for Paul and, you know, and the rest is history. But I think that illustrates the importance of not only having enough, you know, confidence in the Lord and of ourselves to even when we see the errors in our lives, the error in our, you know, personal assumptions when it comes to our faith, we need to move past that. But also when we're on the other side, we need to have more grace with people and help grow and you know, expound the word of God more perfectly unto people like Priscilla and Aquila did. That's a really good example. You know, Apollos was a man that was mighty in the scriptures. He just needed something added onto it. And rather than disqualifying his whole ministry, Priscilla and Aquila were like, I can help you with that, you know? So. Can we talk about um, verse 22, proving that this is very Christ? Can we talk about what that means? Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So in 22, I think it's a really uh, funny turn of phrase, an excellent example of KJV here, uh, when it says that Saul increased more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And I mean, just to make a long story short, that would be like saying he is so Christ. He is so Messiah. He is so the anointed one of the Lord. Um, he's that to a great degree. I think Eric earlier, when we were discussing this, you just said, truly, truly he is the Christ. I think that would be a good way of seeing this as well. Did Luke have a spirit of a valley girl come upon him? <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know it. <laughs> so, so why did the, why did the Jews want to kill him? Because they, that's one thing that's kind of perplexed me. Just the Jews at Damascus that he confounded, were they mad that, that that he was just winning debates? Like, why why did they want to kill him? It's not really clear to me why they wanted to kill him. Yeah, I mean, I think similar to how, you know, in Luke chapter 24, before Jesus ascends to heaven, he uses the Old Testament and he expounds the disciples' understanding to where they're looking at the Old Testament and they see, they see Jesus. 
now Paul has this new understanding of the Old Testament that he studied his whole life, and he sees Jesus interwoven through the scripture. And he's saying, this Torah that I've taught all along, right, I'm going to show you how Jesus is the Messiah using the Old Testament scriptures. And because they didn't agree with Jesus as, as the Messiah, right, they couldn't hear it, and they wanted to kill him. Yeah. I mean, we see Jesus put on trial. He defends himself as Messiah. They kill him. We see Stephen put on trial. He defends Jesus as Messiah. They kill him. We see Paul here doing the same thing. They want to kill him again. And I think uh, specifically going back to the words that they use for Stephen, they could not withstand the wisdom which he spake. And Eric, you made the point perfectly. When they see somebody preaching with such conviction and clarity, uh, out of the Old Testament, um, and that is essentially anathema to them. They cannot reconcile it with their point of view. The choice is either assimilate, take it in, and accept it, or destroy the other view. And so I think it's unfortunate that they chose the destroy part. But when you see two things that are totally irreconcilable, the stance that Jesus is not who he claims to be, that he is a total uh, heretic, false prophet, and you see somebody else coming in and saying, well, actually, there are like 20 different verses here, 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 and here that all cohesively point together to make an argument. Um, you either have to destroy that and get it out of your way and say, I'm not going to uh, listen because this is false, even if I can't tell you why, or you have to uh, assimilate and take it in and believe it to some degree. And, you know, Philip, similar to how whenever um, Stephen looked into heaven and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God, right in power, um, Whenever he made that claim, basically that he was God, that was it. Like that was the same blasphemy that the Sanhedrin used to put Jesus on trial. Whenever he said, you're going to see me come in the clouds, right? With all of my saints, that was putting him on the same pedestal as God. And Paul did the same thing. Saul did the same thing in this chapter. Whenever he called him the son of God, that wasn't saying, oh, this is God the Father, and he has a distinct son, right, as a lower deity or being, he's saying, no, whenever you see Jesus, right, you see him in his divinity as God. And that would have been on the same level as Jesus saying what he said in the Gospels that put him on trial. They wanted to kill him as well. That That's why you bring up a point that 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 is interesting when talking about Trini Trinitarians, um, that Paul was schooled in, in, in the Jewish faith and the Torah. And if there's anything the Jews believed is that, that God was one. That God is one. And if it was revealed to Paul and to all these other guys that actually we were wrong this whole time. God's not one. God's three. Like, they would have wrote about it. <laughs> they would, like they would have been freaking out about it and telling everybody, like guys, we, we have a new revelation that God's not, not God's not one. He has a a, a son, you know. <laughs> yeah, That's you would almost expect there to be something in this passage of, and Paul expounded the you know the glory of the three persons and one Godhead, but there's nothing <laughs> like that. Yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, man, and I think just even the encounter that the language of the encounter that Jesus had with Paul. It's like, you can't debate at all the experience that he had when Jesus said, you know, I am the Lord, uh, Jonathan, like you were saying, I am Yahweh, you know, you, that language isn't saying, you know, I'm one of these three persons. It's literally saying, I am the one true God, the God that you were trained to worship from the time that you were a child. You know, I'm that God. So, 
the language is pretty stark. One little thing I wanted to mention about this passage too. I think this goes back to whenever we're reading the book of Acts, we think that like these all happen within a short time frame of one another. Um, and at the end of that passage, right now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. If you read in Galatians, Paul reflects back on this this time frame, and he says that he's after he originally converted in Damascus, he went to Arabia and then came back to Damascus, and that would have been a span of three years. So you're probably looking at three years from the time he's converted to whenever he leaves Damascus to go to Jerusalem. So a little wow. food for thought there. Yeah, and I believe there's also like a step of personal preparation in there because doesn't Paul reference like his time in Arabia where he's fasting, growing in grace, growing in knowledge of yeah, the Lord? It's almost, so it's almost like a wilderness experience that Jesus yeah. had. Yeah, sure. And we can equate that, you know, to like even the the experience of David growing in skill and um, and all of the awesome qualities that David had, you know, he got a lot of that from being in the pasture with the sheep. So, um, and there's a principle in this too, because we're going to get into this next passage. Like I said, where Saul goes to Jerusalem and presents himself to the apostolic authority to start ministering. He had already started to build on the foundation of his ministry before he went to his authority. You know, like a lot of times we feel like God gives us a call to preach, a call to minister, a call to do any sort of ministry, like exactly like Paul. You know, Paul had a call on his life, but at the same time, we can't just go straight to our pastor and say, pastor, put me behind the pulpit. I'm ready. Let me teach, you know, the married class, you know, the the biblical parenting class, which I've asked my pastor to teach, by the way, and he usually gets a good laugh when I ask him. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there has to be some preparation. There has to be some action accompanied with your call in order to make it qualified, you know? You mean that so, faith without works is dead being alone? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but, I like um, that, Avery. You know, it's, you mentioned David, and it's very similar with Paul here. There's a time of anointing, and then there's a time of appointing, you know? And those yeah. two things are vastly different, right? You can be anointed to be king, but from the time where you're anointed to be king to where you're actually king is years in between. So it's God has a calling for your life, right? You're anointed to fulfill a certain calling, but God expects you to prepare yourself and work out your salvation and work out your calling, right? I think uh, last year we studied it in Ephesians 4, right? Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a time frame where you're preparing yourself for whenever God will appoint you to fulfill whatever ministry he has for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I think it's always I just think it's really funny the image of Saul being lowered in a basket I don't know why I just think it's kind of comical it's almost like a comic which relief. that's something else we could talk about <laughs> like the uh, the image and the theme of the basket you know um, who's another uh, figure in scripture that was put in a basket for the purpose of salvation that had a huge call and plan and purpose of God in front of them I think of Moses Noah? Yeah, <laughs> Noah too. Like, the, like the ark is a very similar parallel big, to the basket. The big basket, big basket, really. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, like I think this is just calling back to um, I don't necessarily know what the full implication is. I haven't studied it out, but there seems like this idea that God uses a basket, you know, and there was always another person involved in the basket. You know, Moses had his mother, um. 
I mean, the ark, you could say that Noah and the rest of his family built the ark. And, you know, there was always another human action that was aided with the basket to help bring another to salvation, you know? So it's like God is using the people around him to bring Saul to salvation so that he can be saved and prepared for this purpose going later, this awesome purpose and this awesome call on the kingdom going forward. That's really good. Yeah. All right. You want to move on? You ready? Yeah. Let's do it. We've been talking a lot about this already, but uh, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto him how he had seen the or and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. They went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Yep. Okay, so I think we could stop here. This is, uh, again, we already talked about uh, Paul coming before the apostles, uh, basically getting the okay. We see Barnabas, um, which um, has come up already a little bit before, but, you know, this is where Barnabas and Paul kind of first intersect. And uh, if you don't know, they become a real dynamic duo in ministry uh, together coming up in their missionary journeys. You know, uh, this group becomes so powerful in their ministry that a lot of the people that they come in contact with and the you know, in the Greek and Roman cities that they go to, they start referring to them as Zeus and Hermes, you know, and um, which is interesting. There's a study out there. Um, they did not refer to Paul as Zeus, you know, and there's a reason why they, a lot of people think that Barnabas was Zeus, but we don't have to go into all that. But it's uh, it's cool seeing that tag team and that dynamic duo kind of come to this is where it first starts. But what do you guys think about this passage here? Can we define the word assayed in verse 26? Attempted to, tried to. Just kind of a, it's a unique one for sure. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. So, you know, I think, I think Barnabas is. Hang out with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think Barnabas is, you know, Avery, to your point, is such a dynamic character. You know, he's obviously a leader in the church, but he's not this prominent leader like Peter and Philip and all the other guys. Um, but he uses his position, right, to always bring people up. You know, we get that that uh, description of him back in chapter four as a son of consolation, a son of encouragement. And we see what he's doing here, right? That's He's really living up to his name, his nickname, um, whenever he's bringing up a new disciple who he frankly doesn't know. But he believes in his testimony, and, and he's, he's believing him to be a disciple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's probably thinking of all of the testimonies of the twelve that are there, you know, he's like, he brought you guys from nothing, you know, (laughs) who's to say that he can't do it for this guy, you know? And that's a point too, you know, Paul mentions, I think it's in first Timothy that he said, my conversion was so radical that anyone, right. That comes after me can use me as like the prototype, as the paradigm to say that God can change lives, you know? And I think that's beautiful because we see that Mm -hmm. in this passage that Barnabas is like, all right, I'm gonna take you in. 
you know, and then Paul's like, you know, he, he just joins himself to the disciples and you get the feeling that if Paul can do it right, anybody can be a disciple. Yeah. And I think it's so important, Avery, you brought the point up earlier. It's not just about people coming to the truth. It's about people that are already in the truth, accepting them and letting them work in the ministry. And right. I think that's something that we could all work on, honestly, because I've certainly seen uh, folks either coming back after backsliding or coming in after conversion. And it takes a little bit of time for people to get used to them and around them. And I mean, some of that is going to be inevitable, but I think we can help a lot of that with the way that we are kind to other people and the way that we forgive. We need to work on that. Yeah. I think of um, the idea that we need to give other people grace as much as we want to receive grace from God. Yeah. Right. And I think forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. Right. Yeah. Verse 27 is an awesome example of showing grace to, you know, someone that maybe didn't quote unquote deserve grace um, in their, in their eyes. But, you know, goodness, it changed Barnabas's life. Right. Yeah, man. And they're, and it's interesting because these 12 apostles and Barnabas and all these guys were looking at, the guy that killed Stephen, you know, the guy that they, they were probably close friends with Stephen. You know, he was not only just one of their fellow workmen with Christ, he was probably like a brother to him. You know, the, these guys were close in ministry and Saul killed him, you know, and he wreaked havoc on the church, but here they're like, okay, you know, if he did it for me, he can do it for you. So come on in, you know, and join the party. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I like, um, I like verse 30. This is the last time until you get uh, to Acts 13 with Paul's first missionary journey where he's mentioned. And he's just kind of, you know, thrown back to Tarsus. And we had mentioned uh, wilderness journeys and wilderness experiences um, back with, uh, and, uh, I forgot the other geographical location he was in, but um, Tarsus would have been the same thing for him, right? He, for a period of time there, he's Paul the persecutor. He's Paul the convert. He's Paul the preacher. And then he's just like Paul the nobody for a couple of years until he gets into uh, chapter 13. So again, I think it's emphasizing the theme of don't neglect the waiting period of ministry, right? God's Mm -hmm. anointing you. Sometimes you're not on the scene for a while, right? But God's waiting for your appointed time. Yeah, well, sometimes you have that in, you know, like you see, like, it's not just like I'm in the pasture still, but it's like, okay, I'm kind of in the palace now. You know, I'm playing heart for the king, but it's like, I'm not there yet, but I'm kind of close. So, and even when David was in the palace, there was still that waiting period even after that. So it's, it's cool. And uh, my pastor always says, God tells long stories. You know, when the story gets a little longer, it's in that chapter where it's like, my goodness, am I almost done with this chapter? Stick it out because, you know, the story that God tells with your life is it's it's an awesome story. Don't don't just skip from the intro to the end automatically or don't look for the end. But it's kind of a cliche thing to say, but enjoy the journey of your life. Enjoy the ups and downs. Enjoy the waiting period, because it's usually in those periods where we learn the most. But uh, also a funny topic here. I find it interesting why Paul went to Caesarea and then later to Tarsus. It's because he was taking off all the Grecians people and the apostles basically had to be like, yeah, we're going to save you from these people too. <laughs> so Paul's taking off Jews and Gentiles, man. It's hilarious. Uh, well, this is the second time we see disputing with the Grecians, right? That's a good mm-hmm. cross 
Sorry, mm -hmm. we're not in the charting. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, there was a there was a disputing in uh what chapter was that? That was chapter six. 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 Yeah. yeah. The Grecians um, against the Hebrews. Yeah. 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 Then, then and then Stephen disputed with the with the Grecians too, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It's good. Um then uh is a really interesting segue. So it, it is hard to like and and you, Eric, saying something, you know, when you kind of look at the timeline that years are going by it's 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 hard not to read this and think this is all in like a week's time span but we have to try to wrap our head around the, the time frame here right mm -hmm. yeah i mean um, it's interesting there because galilee is never really mentioned <laughs> you know the church in galilee where did that happen in the book of acts you know it's like but there's things going on behind the scenes too that we're just not privy to um but I, th I think 31 is an interesting verse because it's it's the result of all the conversion and the happenings of Saul. Um, it doesn't indicate that there wasn't persecution, right? It mentions rest. But I think what's happening is the churches are are realizing, wow, this this uh, movement, right, is so beyond ourselves that even someone with a heart like Saul can be converted. We had nothing to fear, right? God obviously sees us. He knows where we're at. So even amidst the persecution, we can have rest and we can have peace. I also like how it says there were um they were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I think those two are very both the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit are very important for any Christian walk. Um, obviously, the fear of the Lord, right, the reverence of God, understanding what God's trying to do in any given situation, and that was needed whenever persecution came. Right, understanding that God has this under control. I can submit myself to the plan of God because I know it's all going to work for good. And then whenever you're afflicted, right, sometimes you just need the comfort of the Holy Spirit to give you peace in those situations. So the church had both, right, to guide them through a very hard time of a persecution. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. All right. All right, we ready? Yeah, let's go. We're kind of switching it up in a big way here. We're switching from Paul over to Peter. Um, but verse 32 picks up and it came to pass as Peter passed throughout all quarters. Um, it's kind of, Peter's getting this depiction of he's just passing to and fro throughout, you know, the different churches and, um, or just the different people of the church it says that Peter came down also to the saints, which dwell at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named, my God, I lost it. Aeneas. Aeneas, um, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise, make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And he dwelt at Lydda, and Sauron saw him. Sorry, I misread that. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Sauron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain... Actually, let's stop there before we get there. So there's this it's little... Sauron, Sauron, it's the Lord of the Rings just came in. Yeah, I know, but... sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we see this little story in between here, and I think these next two stories are for the sole purpose of just kind of showing Peter's development. Not necessarily the sole purpose, but that's one of the big ones, because a, a common theme that we've been seeing throughout the Book of Acts so far is the disciples literally acting like the hands and feet of Jesus. And a lot of them doing exactly what Jesus did, They're, the way they went about doing things, the way they went about performing miracles, preaching, it's showing shades of exactly what Jesus did in the Gospels. And we see that with 
this guy. And it reminds me of, I believe it's in, is it Mark chapter two, where we see that story with the man sick of the palsy that Jesus heals. Um, almost the same language when Peter goes to him and he's like, arise, take up your bed and go your way to your house. And um, we see that same language here and the same result, you know, Peter lifts the man up and he picks up his bed and walks home, you know, what do you guys think? I think it's awesome too. You know, at the beginning of this little passage, it says that Peter was going throughout all parts of the country. You know, he was just going around all quarters and at the beginning of the book of Acts, you know, people were coming to Peter, right? They were traveling from all across the world to Jerusalem. Now Peter's like, no, I'm taking this to the streets. And so I think we we really see, you know, we started to see it with the persecution of Stephen and the churches being scattered abroad. But now it seems that the, the church really does have a global mindset, right? That this is not just for Jerusalem. This is for the whole world. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's great. All right. Well, Anything else? I don't think so. Let's keep going. All right. Uh, verse 36, we're going to another story. Still Peter, but now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lita was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him to the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, so here's another miracle that Peter does that shows shades of what Jesus did in the Gospels uh, specifically. And we already brought it up, Eric, the uh, the daughter of Jairus that Jesus healed. The language that Peter uses is very similar. The result is the same. The damsel that was dead is now alive, you know. And uh, Eric, you brought up something really cool that we were saying before. Uh, do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, kind of going along with what Avery's saying about different shades of the Gospels. You know, if you um, if you studied Mark back in 2021, Mark chapter 5, you know, there was a passage, the same kind of theme. Jesus takes out all the doubters of the room to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. And then um, he speaks to her, Talitha Kumi, which interpreted right from the original language, uh, damsel, I say, into the arise. We don't get the original language in um, Acts chapter 9 here, but what Peter would have said to Tabitha or Dorcas would have been Tabitha Kumi, which is deer, right? Tabitha's name means deer. Deer, I say unto thee, arise. So it's almost like Peter remembers, right, being in the room with Jesus, right? Because Peter would have been part of the big three that he kind of took with him in a lot of Mm -hmm. these little intimate miracle situations. He would have remembered what Jesus did. And he's just saying, if it worked back then, it's going to work right now. And he's just taking that same uh, model that Jesus gave to to then preach or to command healing to this lady, Tabitha. It's kind of cool. It mm-hmm. is really cool. He had that power in him now. 
he had the the same power that Jesus had, right? It's ah, that's so cool. Yeah. Jonathan, you got anything? You guys are you guys are killing it. Everything that you've said, <laughs> I agree with, and I couldn't make a I couldn't make it any better. So uh, it, it's interesting how sometimes people have two names and they give you. It's, I don't know. It's is there a reason why sometimes they give you the name by interpretation? And is there any reason for that? Well, sometimes I think it's a it's a thing of Aramaic and Greek, right? I want to say that Dorcas is the Greek name. And Tabitha would have been the Aramaic name. Yeah. I personally think I'd have to go by Tabitha if I had both choices. (laughs) You're such a Dorcas. What'd you call me? (laughs) Dear. (laughs) I do think it's cool um, how both Jesus and Peter, you know, took out the weepers and the doubters. Because it's almost like, you know, if anyone's grieving over a, a situation, they've already accepted it in their hearts, right? You don't Mm -hmm. grieve over something that you have hope that can change. You've kind of already accepted that this is the reality. Let me grieve it. Uh, Peter didn't accept that, right? He walked into the room with the expectation that this woman was going to rise from the dead. And so we had to take out, right, the acceptance. And I have here a prerequisite of a miracle is expectation beyond acceptance. That you have to say, this is my current state. Right. But I believe that God can can rise above where I'm at. And God, I, I'm not going to accept where I am. I'm going to bring this to Jesus because Jesus can't heal me. That's a prerequisite to any miracle. Sure. Sure. And it, like it doesn't even say like in Jesus's experience with the daughter of Jairus, Jairus, uh, Jairus, um, uh, we see that their faith was so little that when Jesus said she's not dead, but she sleeps, that they laughed him to scorn. You know, and that was the point where Jesus was like, get out. <laughs> but here, uh, there is no uh, indicator that these people like are actually like unbelieving or will laugh Peter to scorn if he is going to do this miracle. But I think just in this moment, the emotions were high. And like you were saying, Eric, they already accepted the death of Tabitha. And Peter is like, okay. You know, I get it. You guys are acknowledging the situation, but I'm going to put you out here because I know what I've seen and I know the same result can happen. So what you guys have accepted, I haven't. And I know that, you know, through faith and praying the prayer of faith that the sick can recover. So, you know, it's okay to recognize the situation, but at the same time, if you recognize that God can do a miracle, part of the, I feel like part of the task that we run into a lot is just, putting away our own understanding and putting away the understanding that we have of the situation and really looking at it from the faith lens. You know, that's cliche, you know, don't like have faith and God can do wonders with great faith. But I feel like the practice of really putting away that, um, that disbelief can be a hard thing sometimes, but the more you see God work, the more, you know, I've, I was on a uh, campus ministry uh, Zoom meeting here recently, and um, one of the things that the speaker was saying is he kept referring to these disciplines like faith and fasting and all of these things as skills. And it's like the skill of fasting, fasting, the skill of faith, the skill of action. You know, part of the stuff here that we see with Peter he practiced with Jesus. Jesus was showing him this, the example, and that was his practice. Some of these faith 
experiences, like how did they have this crazy faith in the Bible? It was because they practiced it. You know, they, they built up the skill of faith. So sometimes I feel like we, um, we go into these situations where we need a crazy miracle, but we don't see anything happen because we've done no practicing in our faith before for anything, you know, and I don't, like how many times when we feel led to do something, do we say, no, nah, that can't happen, God, I'm not going to do it. Like if we feel led to step out of our comfort zone and go pray for somebody at Starbucks or something or go just witness to somebody and we don't do it because we feel like we're disqualified. And then something happens at church where we can pray for somebody to get healed. And we're like, okay, God, why aren't you healing this person? Practice your faith, you know? Um, and I'm not, I'm getting passionate about it a little bit because I see that in myself too. I see the struggle with that, but faith legitimately is a skill that we can work on that we can build we can build the muscle of faith i think that's a fantastic point and actually it wraps back in i wanted to talk about dorcas a little bit because she was practicing all kinds of good things and mm -hmm. uh she actually is really really similar to the proverbs 31 woman if you go back and look at it she's making clothing she's giving alms right stretching out her hand to the poor reaching forth her hands to the needy all these other things, she's doing excellent, excellent work for the Lord. And uh, sometimes, you know, we look at somebody and say, oh, they were in the prime of life and like serving the Lord. Why did God take them? Um, and anyway, ultimately that question is up to God. But I almost wonder if Peter's like, no, she can't, like, we can't lose her. She's doing too much um, because anyway, she's make anyway, very impressive. I think it's good. Certainly some uh, some forms of Christianity take veneration of people that do good things to a much higher level than is healthy. But I think also having heroes in the faith that we can look to and try to emulate. And I think Dorcas is an excellent example here. And um, I like to think that even if she didn't, you know, try to go off a checklist every day, am I the Proverbs 31 woman, right? It, she says she was there with the widows. A lot of those ladies didn't even have husbands. So they weren't doing it to get a husband, they were just doing it to serve the Lord. And anyway, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful picture there. And if you went and mapped out, I'm sure there are like three or four coming off the top of my head that uh, specific things that she does that map directly back to Proverbs 31, which is not the only place that the Lord talks about um, righteousness and serving his kingdom. But um, anyway, I think that she, anyway, she didn't deserve being brought back to life. I mean, whatever, don't talk in deserve terms, but I think it is a really nice bonus. Um, and I hope that she would have returned and gone and done all the things that she was doing beforehand um, with maybe the further testimony of what God had done for her. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right. Well, we're, we're wrapping up the chapters. Anybody have any one last thing comments? I wanted to mention? All right. All right. <laughs> um, Luke is probably the best cliffhanger author I've ever <laughs> gnome um and he's great <laughs> at using foreshadowing because <laughs> that last verse is all it's i mean part of this is the kjv translators like you know with the chapter breaks but that last verse it came to pass that he tarried many days in joppa with one simon a tanner um so obviously if you look at the next chapter we're going to talk about that next time but um so this statement would have been shocking to any jew at the time because what was a tanner right it's a person that routinely worked with dead animals, right? Uh, tanning them and, and, and uh, not carving them, but like scraping them. Uh, <laughs> and so if any Jew, this would have been prohibited, right? It would have been uncustomary for Peter to go and to lodge, right? And to be with one Simon a tanner. 
And so it kind of foreshadows that in the next chapter, right, Peter's also going to be asked to do some things that are not customary to the Jewish law. And we'll get more into that next time. So cliffhanger for what Peter's going to be asked to do in Acts chapter 10. <laughs> it, it is it, it, going to be a good one. Yeah, uh, 10 is my favorite. Oh, 10 is my favorite chapter. Um, it, it, that does make sense why that they call out his occupation, right? Because they don't tell you everybody's occupation. I mean, we know that who the fish, you know, there's some fishermen and there's some that they name, but it is. It could also be to specify because we have oh, like true. Peter 17 Simons. <laughs> that is true. That's another good reason. But All I right. like your reason better. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one scholar literally says the trade of a tanner was held in such supreme contempt that if a girl was betrothed to a tanner without knowing that he followed that calling, the betrothal was void. Nice. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how like lowly tanners were back then. Wow. Interesting. Well, Jesus yeah. hung out with some uh, lowly people, and I guess Peter learned that too, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> All right. Well, great chapter. Oh, it's an awesome chapter. Um, I am really looking forward to Acts chapter ten. Ten is my all-time favorite. I, um, I'm sure a lot of people know that watch this podcast, but um, some of the quizzers in our um, in our organization have decided to start a BQ prayer and fasting page every Wednesday doing the fast. And Eric and I were asked to do devotions, and I did mine on Acts chapter ten because. It's my all-time favorite. And we, we're going to talk more about that, and we can, I'm sure we'll cover what I touched on in my devotion um, next time. But before we completely close off Acts chapter 9, um, what are your guys' MVP verses for this chapter? Eric? <laughs> <laughs> I would say mine would um, be verse 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And we're edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. I think it shows that you don't need crazy programs, right? You don't need everything to be perfect. You don't even need a lack of persecution. But all you need is the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and you can see growth. Jonathan, what you got? I'm looking. He just took mine. Can you go first? <laughs> um I was going to say 17, but I think uh, after thinking about it for a little while longer, I think I like 16 uh, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. Because I think it really puts into perspective the purpose and the mindset of Paul, you know, come hell or high water, suffering. If I suffer, I'm closer to God. And, you know, if anything, the sufferings of this present time and the suffering for being zealous for God is just, it's like uh, Romans 12 that Paul writes says, it's my reasonable service for all of the um, number one, for all that Jesus has done for me, but for how zealous I was against him. It's like the least I can do to be zealous and to suffer for his namesake. So I love that verse. Really good. I, uh, I found one and it's it's a little bit odd why I like it, so I'll have to explain that too. But it, it would actually be verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said unto him, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I think that's so interesting and deep. And um, I understand it on such a level because there's a verse in the Proverbs, and I don't know the reference, bad quizzer that I am. But it says that a wise man will turn out a rebuke, but a fool will require a hundred stripes. 
feel like that's a way too common theme in my life where I'm the one like kicking at the prick and God is like, come on, like just go where I'm trying to make you go where I'm yeah. fighting him at every turn. And it's uh, at some point I'll realize, Oh, this is perfect. Like this is exactly what I need to do from my undergrad institution to my med school to anyway, hundreds of other things too, where I, I really like the one thing I ended up doing was the one thing that I fought hardest not to do. Um, and so anyway, I, I feel Paul at that level or Saul at this point where he's like fighting, fighting, fighting because he thinks he's in the right. And then you're like, oh, I guess God and I weren't on the same page. Um, but I think just like we mentioned earlier, if you can take the momentum you had when God gives you a pivot point and turn on that and go get back in line with him, however many times that is, I think that is really meaningful. And so I appreciate that verse. That's awesome. Uh, I think mine would be 27. Um, I know we touched on it, but I think it's interesting how how much um, how much Luke shows us how evil um, Saul was and how, what the people thought of him and how um, how much grace it took in Barnabas's heart to do what he did um, and and trusting in the Lord and I'm sure being spirit led and sensing that that there was a change in Saul. Um, but I think that's a good reminder for us to treat each other with grace. And I, I like that a lot. All right. Nerdy stuff. Let's get into it. All right. Um, Eric, pronoun master, will you please um, let us know what you have for us this week? Yeah. So last week I hit y'all with a lot. So this week, not so much. Um, only six this week. So. <clears throat> Acts chapter 9, verse 21, this is a point of interpretation, but it's um, probably good to mention here. Um, and came hither for that intent. The intent um, for quizzing purposes is that he, Saul, might bring them bound to the chief priests. That's the intent. Uh, also in verse 21, is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name? This name refers back to verse 17, Jesus' name. Right. Um, not like not the name of Christ or anything like that in verse 20. It's Jesus' name in verse 17. We kind of mentioned that this was a funny translation, but um Acts chapter 9, verse 22, proving that this is very Christ. This refers back to Jesus again in verse 17, that this Jesus is very Christ. Um, verse 30, which when the brethren knew. The which refers back to verse 29, which um, basically is the Grecians went about to slay Saul. The end of that verse, they went about to slay him. They referring to the Grecians, him referring to Saul, which when the brethren knew. Um, verse 40, but Peter put them all out. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Force. Philip, if you think. I'm sorry. Yeah, put them all forth. Um, Philip, correct me if I'm wrong here, if you disagree, but I believe that the them all refers to both the widows and the disciples. So the disciples come from um, verse 38 and the widows come from verse 39. I don't know if I really look too deeply into that one. That is an, inter <laughs> that is an interesting one. I don't and the know. reason for my reason, the reason for my reasoning, <laughs> the reason for that um, is in verse 41. Because it says he called the saints and widows and presented her alive. So that I'm assuming sense. that he took them out and then called them back for and presented yeah, her alive. That makes sense to me. That is yeah. a good deduction. We can get yeah. further clarification if we need to on that and clarify that next week too. Yep. 
Um, Verse 42, and it was known throughout all Joppa, that refers to Peter presenting Tabitha alive in verse 41. And that's all I have. All right. Thank you, Eric. I am uh, trying to accumulate all of our um, all of our pronoun um, sections of our podcast into an Excel spreadsheet. I'm trying to write them all down so I can, you know, make sure my quizzers really have them in the bag. Um, but pronouns are always fun. It's a, I always take the time to if you don't really know one, ask yourself and take the time to figure it out. <clears throat> don't ever hesitate to message one of us on Instagram or wherever, you know, I'm sure we, we're all happy to, to take some questions. Um, always. All right. You message me. I block you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So let's get into a couple charting notes I had for this chapter. Um, some interesting name stuff. Um, we always notice multiples, which is what I call it when something is twice in one verse. Saul is twice in one verse, and it's actually in one question. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's a good one. Um, Peter is twice named in 940, and Ananias is twice named in 910. So that's a few that are interesting. Um, Simon is only in one verse at the very end. Uh, we always talk about that, where if there is a common name in our study, but a chapter only has it once, that is something to key on. Um, we also have an interesting thing with Tabitha and Dorcas because you can't say, you know, it's, it's weird to say, you know, quote the verses in which Dorcas is named because she's named as Tabitha and as Dorcas, but the way as a question writer to get around that is the name Dorcas or the name Tabitha, because they are different names, um, in different languages. So, yes. And if she just had one more name, she could be a Trinity. <laughs> oh, my word. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, questions in the chapter. Questions is always something that we key on. Key in on. There's only four. Saul asked two of them. Jesus or the Lord asked one. I think you could ask it either way. Uh, the Lord or Jesus. Um, and then uh, all that heard Saul asked a question so i don't think you could ask you know i don't i i wouldn't write quote all the questions in acts chapter nine i think it's a little too much um someone could do that but it's definitely a few different ways you could write out um ask questions on questions uh then we have consecutive verses with bed that's talking about aeneas and 33 and 34 Consecutive verses with Joppa, consecutive verses with Damascus. We always look out for consecutives. That's another way to to write good 30-point cross-quotes, potentially. Um, Numbers in Chapter 9 is is another one, sometimes an overlooked charting. We have the number 3 in verse 9. We have the number 8 in verse 33. We have the number 2 in verse 38. And then uh, the number 1 is always tough because the 1 is kind of all over the place. But the number 1 is in 9-11 and 43, uh, which is both referring to a person, one Saul and one Simon, I believe. Um, So definitely some cross potential there. Um, Eyes, the only body part in this chapter, and it's three times. And then there's an interesting cross there because Saul opened his eyes and Tabitha, or Dorcas, opened her eyes. So definitely a good cross to look out for. Um, Then 
an interesting cross is uh, a rise and go in this chapter. And we can even tie it back to chapter 8 when Philip was instructed to rise and go. But Philip was instructed to rise and go where? Saul was instructed to rise and go where? And Ananias was instructed to rise and go where? The Bible quizzing theme for 2023 is contained in how many verses and what are they? <laughs> Very good. I like it. Um, the words of Peter in this chapter are very much question length. Uh, it's just Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise and make thy bed. Tabitha, arise. It's everything Peter said in this chapter. So definitely question worthy. Um, and then two people are described as sick in this chapter, Aeneas and Tabitha, or Dorcas. In my questions this year with Ta- with Dorcas, I put Tabitha, and then I put parentheses, or Dorcas. It's just like, you say either one. Um, it's always kind of tough, because I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to confuse anybody. But um, And then Saul boldly did uh, something in verse 27. And he boldly did something in verse 29. So uh, that's another good one. The other thing, I know I'm going on quite a while here, but there are quite a few uh, statement, interesting statement things um, where statements go on more than one verse um, or are part of a verse. But one thing that I was looking at, especially in this chapter, is there are spoken statements by people that go on for more than one verse. So for instance, um, the statement of Ananias mentioning the chief priests, it goes on like what he says in one statement goes on for more than one verse. So that's a very quotable chunk that could be asked as a question. Um, also what the Lord said when he's, um, I, I just wrote, I write it down just to, so I can remember it, but the statement of the Lord contained the phrase chosen vessel. That's the Lord saying one sentence across multiple verses. They can be asked as a question. So little things like that are stuff to look out for and be prepared for because question writers will write stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that's all I have for, for charting today. So I think we have everything wrapped up. But um, I texted you guys earlier because I didn't want to put you guys on the spot, but I had an idea for the end here, and I think this will be quick. Um, hopefully it will be quick. But it is late, and um, we all have stuff to do tomorrow. But. Um, for quizzers specifically in the quizzing ages, do any of you or all of you have one book recommendation that maybe you read later in life, or maybe you read it as a quizzer that you would recommend? It doesn't even have to be, you know, it can be, uh, just a awesome book you love that has nothing to do with quizzing or, or anything. Um, but is there any good book recommendations? Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> Look, there are a ton of good books out there. Um, I mentioned already C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. That one's really good. I mean, with everything that I suggest, um, Lewis has some questionable theology, so just be careful if you read him. Mm-hmm. But uh, he does write a killer children's story. Um, very good job there. All right. I feel like um, I've actually just read this book, but I think it's, you know, the age level of quizzers. Um, it's Brother Bernard's book on, it's called Anchor Points. Um, he has a lot of different books, like going di- like deep into oneness and holiness. Anchor points is more like a high level, like you know, just a basic 
um, view of apostolic doctrine. And it's easy for new converts. It's easier for teenagers. So if you're really looking to dive more into our apostolic identity and doctrine, Anchor Points is a great book to start at. My favorite book of all time, and it's a really short read. It's only like 90 pages, but it's called A Tale of Three Kings. Um, it's, um, it's basically a story or it's a book that the author talks about the relationship between David and Saul and then David and Absalom. So David, Saul and Absalom are the three Kings and just the principles of leadership, how to deal with conflict, how to deal with spiritual authority is the principles that that book gives is insane. It blew my mind. And it's a short read. I feel like anybody can read it and enjoy it. So I love that one. And anything from C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. Yeah. All right. Great recommendations, guys. All right. I also, real quick, actually, I wrote a poem about Bible quizzing that's on YouTube, and I like that poem pretty well. So if you're just <laughs> looking for something super short, which it's it's kind of long for a poem, but called I listened well, to it, well and it was great. It is really good. <laughs> I really enjoyed it a lot. So Jonathan, you are a man of many talents, and um, yeah. <laughs> too many words, I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean your ninety-eight page essay on on speaking in tongues <laughs> is quite extensive, uh, but it yeah. is important, I think, and it's uh, impressive. And I'm going to be using it for sure. So, um, awesome. well, I'm glad that uh, it can help people in the real world. Well, absolutely. Um, I already used your baptism one for my last lesson, so it's uh, it's just it's excellent. And side note, a lady read that, Jonathan, and the same lady got baptized the day the next day. So what? that's <laughs> yeah. awesome. I'm so, so happy to hear that. Yes, I I, I used uh, I used a lot of your points in my lesson on baptism in our food pantry. And then she had, she, I told them, I said, I have a friend that wrote this essay all about baptism. And if you want to really dive in for a 40 page essay, um, just ask me and I'll, I'll email it to you. And one person came up and said, I want that essay. And uh, she, she read the whole thing. Yep. She got baptized. That's fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> very, very thrilled to God be the glory. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for taking your time and uh, t- taking your time to be here and for going through this. We have through nine chapters. We only have five more. So mm-hmm. we are, we are getting there and it's been a lot of fun. So thank you guys. And I'm um, looking forward to seeing all of you on the next one.